0: Hello, and welcome to the latest Clearbridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA investment strategist at Clearbridge Investments. Clearbridge is a global equity manager with $125 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long term results through authentic active management. Clearbridge tailors our strategies to meet three primary client objectives in our areas of proven expertise high active share, income solutions, and low volatility. We integrate environmental, social, and governance. That are known as ESG considerations, into our fundamental research process across all strategies. Now, speaking of ESG, and you're going to hear quite a bit of, about ESG throughout this podcast, ClearBridge is pleased to announce the publication of our 2018 impact report. This is the second annual report that we've put out. I'm excited to be here today with some of the individuals that are responsible for the engagement that you'll find in that impact report. We have Matt Lilling, an analyst for our small and mid-cap strategies. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. We have Rob Busing, an analyst covering the consumer staples sector. Hi, Jeff. And we have Tatiana Eads, a senior analyst covering the utilities sector. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for being here. And the topic of today's podcast is the impact report of 2018. So we'd love to get your feedback about the topics we cover and how we can make our podcast better. You can contact us with questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing us at podcast at So environmental, social, and governance considerations, better known as ESG considerations, have been an important component of our investment process for over 30 years. We realize that regular reporting on sustainability is one of the most effective ways to inform and educate asset owners, individual investors, and company management. And our impact report is intended to provide an overview of how exactly we integrate ESG across all portfolios. You're also going to find in it that we highlight key engagements with companies during the year, And we also discuss areas where we have seen meaningful progress as a result of our engagement. Now, the one thing that differentiates ClearBridge is that our sector and portfolio analysts drive ESG considerations in the fundamental research that they conduct in their specific coverage areas. For every stock recommendation, every analyst maintains an internal ESG rating, that helps inform portfolio managers and other analysts with a holistic view of that stock, which is inclusive of both financial and ESG drivers. So uh, I'm going to kick it over to you three at this point. How do you integrate ESG considerations into your portfolio and your company analysis? Rob, maybe I'll, I'll kick it over to you first.
1: Sure. Thanks, Jeff. So as Jeff mentioned, I cover consumer staples here at ClearBridge. Within my sector, I focus on many issues that fall under the broader ESG umbrella that I integrate into my overall research process. As Jeff was mentioning earlier, I believe an integrated research process allows us to better capture the fundamental benefits of a company having strong ESG credentials. For consumer staples, I seek to evaluate the overall environmental impact of the business, particularly focused around packaging, waste, and water usage, along with supply chain transparency and commitment to sourcing in a responsible way. Staples companies tend not to be as carbon-intensive in their direct manufacturing footprint as many other industries, but there are lots of indirect impacts, for example, the exhaust from the trucks driving the products around to retailers, as well as the environmental impact of discarded packaging on ecosystems at the end of the product's life. These indirect impacts and end-of-life impacts have been an increasing area of dialogue and focus for me with my companies. Not only is this area important for the environmental impact alone, but there are brand equity-building reputational benefits to the companies and cost-reduction opportunities for companies who effectively reduce their environmental impact and can message that effectively to consumers. Conversely, companies who don't focus on these issues Open themselves up to consumer boycotts and potential government fines when things go wrong. Additionally, the social impact of the products sold are an important consideration within my space, given many of the products are consumed by people. So I like to focus on evaluating whether a business is improving the nutritional or health profile of the products they sell, as well as the overall health profile of those products. Particularly as sugar has become a greater health concern for consumers and regulators over the recent few years companies that have high sugar products should be seeking to reduce the sugar content in those products and providing consumers greater choice around low sugar options. In addition to being a good thing for consumer health, this is actually on trend with what consumers want. And companies that have innovated well in this area have benefited in terms of enjoying faster revenue growth than peers. On the governance side, I evaluate the representation of women and underrepresented minority groups within the management and board of the company the overall effectiveness and independence of the board, and the appropriateness of the incentives and pay for management. Clearly, having good practices in this area prevents problems down the road and is indicative of good risk management practices and a management team that's aligned with shareholders.
0: Great. Thanks, Rob. I will attest that I am uh, trying to move away from sugar. That's one thing that was one of my goals coming into this year, and I'm failing miserably. But obviously, that is something that's going to be one of the EST considerations. And I think it's something that's a net benefit to consumers, broadly speaking. Hey, Tatiana, talk to me a little bit about your sector. What are the issues that you typically see at both the sector and the industry level?
2: Sure, Jeff. So in addition to looking at more generally used ESG characteristics related to the company's governance and safety of operations, there are some sector-specific considerations I use in my analysis of the utility companies. The most important one is pollution profiles of my companies. So I compare the company's emissions of nitrogen oxides, sulfur dioxide, and carbon into the atmosphere per unit of power produced. The amount of emissions is a function of the company's fleet quality, as the companies with more efficient plants or with a greater number of plants retrofitted with emission-capturing equipment tend to pollute less. Another important ESG consideration is in the ownership of renewable generation across my sector. The utility companies have been actively increasing their ownership of solar and wind power due to the state's renewable portfolio standard requirements that obligate a certain percent of power sold in the state to be sourced from qualifying renewable sources. Now, the most aggressive renewable requirements among the states are in California, where they require the state utilities to source half of all power from the renewable power sources by 2030. Investing in large-scale solar and wind projects ends up contributing to the company's earnings as well. So I think this is a good example of how doing the right thing pays off to investors as well over the longer term.
0: And I think that's maybe one of the misconceptions that we have, right, is that if you do the right thing that you won't actually get the benefit of better earnings and better stock performance.
2: No, here it actually works to everyone's advantage. I agree. So, and understandably, we prefer to invest in the utilities that own better, more efficient power generating plants that have lower pollution profiles and also the companies that own sizable renewable capacity. And now one more example of utility-specific ESG considerations relates to the regulatory profiles of the specific states where my companies operate. In my view, successful utilities tend to have constructive relations with their state regulators. And not surprisingly, the company's ability to deliver good financial performance is frequently determined by specific regulatory mechanisms and framework that exists in their jurisdictions. The quality of regulatory environment is typically reflected in the company's valuations as the companies that operate in the states with productive or favorable regulations tend to trade at higher valuation multiples than the companies that really struggle to earn their allowed returns.
0: Now, Tatyana, do you have a company that embodies a lot of these ESG considerations that you've
2: been speaking about? Yes, I think a really good example would be air Energy. So, Nextera Energy owns two electric utilities in Florida and also owns a competitive energy business, which has grown to be the world's largest generator of renewable energy from wind and solar. And they're also a world leader in battery storage.
0: Which that's very interesting to me. And when I think battery storage, I think of like a provider like Tesla as being a world leader of battery storage, not a, a utility company.
2: No, utilities have been more and more involved in the battery storage as they're trying to increase the productivity of renewable resources. Interesting. So this company specifically is actually, they own 14 gigawatts of wind power in the US, which is one of the biggest exposure. And they also have the lowest emission profile in my sector. So, just to give you a perspective, in 2017, the company's emission rates for SO2, NOx, and carbon were 96%, 76%, and 55% lower, respectively, than the U.S. utility sector average, which is quite, quite impressive. So, being an efficient operator drives higher customer satisfaction with reliability of power supply and lower monthly rates, which, in turn means lower regulatory risk in the state where the company operates. So a favorable regulatory climate in Florida is reflected in the current agreement that the company has with its regulators that actually allows Nextera Energy's utilities to earn premium returns on their investments. So as a result of all of that, the company will be able to grow its earnings at almost double the industry's rate. And I think that's why the stock continues to trade at the premium multiple relative to all other utilities in my sector.
0: Great, great. That certainly gives the, the listeners quite a View and an understanding of how we look at the world. We've also talked about from a sector perspective with you and Rob, obviously. Let's turn it over to Matt and maybe talk about it from a generalist perspective. Matt, you cover the small and the mid cap space. How do you approach ESG investing?
3: Sure, so focusing on many sectors and being in the small cap space, we often see a lot of small and innovative growth companies that still have a lot of founder CEOs in charge of their company. So, When that happens, two things tend to occur. And the first is that we see key man risk or key person risk where succession planning could be an issue. That founder CEO might have a lot of power at the company or they might be the only person driving that company forward. They might not have invested enough in the leadership around them that could take over if something were to happen to them. They have a heart
0: attack, hit by a bus, what have you. Yeah, exactly.
3: Or there's an ethical issue amongst somebody on the management team, which we've seen as well. The second thing we find when dealing with a lot of founder CEOs is board entrenchment. So sometimes the board of directors of these companies are often loyal to that founder CEO, Because they've been around them for so long, and they've been with them through some of the early stage investment process in that company when it was a startup.
0: Which is what you'd expect.
3: Right. So what we try to do is we try to assess those risks. And if it's a problem, well, maybe we won't invest in that company at all And if the risk is too high. Now, if it's some level of risk that's manageable, what we might want to do is incorporate that into our... Understanding that we may need a greater than two to three times upside to downside risk reward, which which is the number that we would typically look for in investment. So people often ask, well, when you're looking at incorporating ESG into, you know, your process, how does that work? And I think, you know, the best way to describe it is when you're from a fundamental approach, something that's not ESG but very similar is customer concentration. We might see a very strong and innovative growth company that might have one customer that's 40% of their revenue. And that would just be, you know, a company that we couldn't invest in because that's too high of a risk. That customer could start yielding their power. Like like
0: Walmart does with all their
3: suppliers. That's right. That's right. And so we've actually seen consumer companies that sell into Walmart where Walmart's 40% of their customer base, and this is a company we otherwise would have liked to invest in, but we just couldn't get there. So that's something that's very similar from a fundamental approach to how we look at ESG investing.
0: Now, thinking about it from a mid and small cap company as well, isn't interacting with them, talking about the ESG-specific related issues with them early also good to incorporate that as they grow larger and larger? It's already ingrained in their culture. Is there there's some sort of tangible benefit there?
3: Oh, definitely. And one of the things that we've seen is as in the small cap space especially, we become sometimes three, four, five, even greater than 5% shareholders in the company is that we're able to get management on the phone with us when we want to discuss relevant issues. And oftentimes, we get to speak with the members of the board of directors, sometimes on the comp committee, or oftentimes I prefer to speak to the lead independent director as a way to make sure that they understand what the issues of the shareholders are And that they can have proper oversight
0: over management. So not only are we concentrated, so we get a seat at the table, if you will, but ClearBridge's implied weighted average holding period is seven years, which is much longer than a lot of other managers in this space. So if you're a concentrated holder and you're a holder over a long period of time, that's really when you can start to institute those changes from an ESG perspective. Well, we've talked a little bit about kind of sector and general perspectives on what are the issues from an ESG perspective, but maybe we can talk about some company examples. Rob, you you kicked everything off talking about the issues that are facing consumer staple companies. Is there one interaction or engagement that you had this year that stands out as one that you you had success with?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this one's kind of worth highlighting. So about a year ago, we hosted a water day with Coca-Cola, here at Clear Ridge was attended by several buy and sell side investors to talk about their latest initiatives in water conservation and innovation around plastic packaging to reduce waste. And clearly you think about for a company like Coca-Cola, water is a critically important issue for them as it is a key input into their products. Of course. And they've actually done very impressive work in ensuring that they replace at least 100% of the water that they use in manufacturing their products back to the local communities and water tables. This commitment is really important. It helps ensure community goodwill in the areas where they're manufacturing reduces the potential for bad press and consumer backlash because, you know, there's no perception that they're kind of stealing the the local water. And it it greatly lowers the risk that they'll actually run into a situation where they run out of of water in areas where their products are manufactured, which could create, you know, significant supply chain disruption and lead to significantly added costs and lost sales as they try to fill in the gap somehow. Separately, we also discussed their packaging initiatives to reduce the amount of plastic used in the packaging and increase increasing biodegradability of the, of the single-use packaging. You know, Coke has increasingly recognized, along with a lot of other companies in the industry, that single-use packaging waste is a really significant problem. And fixing that problem is actually not just a function of making it recyclable, because a lot of the geographic regions where packaging waste is the biggest or uh, are the biggest issues have pretty limited recycling infrastructure anyway, and not really much consumer awareness or, or habitual recycling habits. So, you know, after a lot of dialogue on that issue over time, Coke has committed to invest more directly in actually building recycling infrastructure, as well as building consumer awareness in, in a lot of those regions to, to supplement their efforts on innovating new packaging and I think South Africa is an early success story that they've had in, in actually building a lot of consumer recycling habits. So, you know, clearly we're still not there yet in terms of eliminating the scourge of single-use packaging waste, either in terms of technology or infrastructure. But we believe these early technology investments and goodwill investments will actually pay off in spades down the road. And we think that Coke taking a leadership position on more sustainable packaging as an issue positions them well for better growth going forward.
0: Yeah, Rob, I remember seeing a note that Koch's awareness campaign in South Africa helped recycling rates increase from less than 10 percent in 2000 up to 55 percent in 2016. That is a huge jump in less than two decades.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was was a huge difference maker. But, I mean, the infrastructure piece was a huge part of that because even if the the packaging itself is recyclable, it doesn't help you if, if consumers aren't actually recycling it and they don't have the facilities to do so.
0: Now, talking about recycled plastic brings me to another company that we've had some successful engagement on from an ESG perspective, which is Trex. Matt, talk to me about your interactions with them over the last couple of years.
3: Sure. So Trex is one of the largest recyclers of plastic in North America. What they do is they make composite deck material using a proprietary blend of plastic that they grind up from the recycling process and sawdust and other wood from this byproduct from furniture and, and other types of facilities that have that byproduct. So I wonder how they even thought of that to begin with. <laughs> it's a great question. I think you know, Trex is actually a great example of how sustainability and profitability are not mutually exclusive. This is one of those companies that they didn't start recycling plastic because they were trying to do the right thing. they They started recycling plastic because they were trying to make money and they saw an opportunity in a byproduct that nobody wanted. And what they did was they put a lot of engineers and a lot of smart people on it. And they saw this is something that nobody wants. How can we make a product that consumers demand that's really high end? And so, in fact, they have a very healthy profit and making a 95% recycled product. So, what Trex has done over the years is actually a great management team. They've taken share from other composite players. And they also have a large opportunity to take share from natural lumber, which is a very large market. right. Right. And so
0: never have to stain it. Like once it's there, it doesn't weather, it doesn't fade. Exactly. Maintenance proof-free.
3: And it looks great too. So what they do is the management team, who's very strong, also consistently takes costs out of this manufacturing process. We've been invested in the company for over five years. And in our original discussions, the the CFO then, who's now CEO of the company, Jim Klein, they didn't have Plans to publish a sustainability report, they didn't see the value in formally reporting ESG accomplishments at that time. And in December, as again, as one of our being one of the largest shareholders at that company, we were in a position to meet with members of management and, in specific, the ones that were responsible for compiling the report. And we were able to discuss with them and to try to help them pitfall common pitfalls of ESG reporting. We talked about which metrics to report. We talked about plenty of governance issues. And we're actually very lucky at ClearBridge to have a great resource in our head of ESG, Mary Jane McQuillan, who's really knowledgeable on all these topics and was also able to give them some companies that we admire from an ESG perspective to help them get started in their ability to report. And they've since come out with a
0: sustainability report that's published on their website. Which strikes me as interesting. You think somebody that has a product that's 95% recyclable would be, you know, a poster child for ESG, but they didn't obviously recognize that they should be disclosing a little bit more and touting that. That's right. Now, Tatiana, you'd given us example with NextEra. Do you have any other examples of engagement that you've had over the course of 2018 and some success there?
2: I do. I do, Jeff. So one recent example of my ESG-related engagement with a specific company is related to a report that was put out by an activist investor and highlighted the issues of excessive compensation and the company's stale board structure at Sempra. So in June of last year, we reached out to Sempra and held several discussions with the investor relations team to address some of those issues. More specifically, we requested more details around the management's compensation structure and also its various components. And in the course of, of those discussions, we learned that a large portion of the management's compensation is tied directly to the market value of the shares. So the highlighted in the report's so-called total shareholder return-based award significantly exceeds the actual compensation received by the management team. And while we felt more comfortable with the company's explanations, we urged them to offer more transparency on the issue going forward. Following the pressure from the existing shareholder base, including us, and also the activist investor involved, Sempra actually undertook several positive steps to improve its governance. More specifically, the company's management agreed to add two new members to its board of directors, And also, Semper's management proposed to create, and it has been done since, a business development committee that can retain its own independent consultants and advisors to review the company's structure and strategy. So, with the new board and the business development committee, there is clearly a renewed focus at the company on shareholder value creation. And we, as a shareholder, understandably welcome such positive steps at the company.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, if you think about this idea of CEO compensation, I mean, it's skyrocketed over the past 30 years. I just looked at the stat the other day that the average CEO is making 271 times their average employee's compensation, and that's up from 30 times back in 1978. So, obviously, disclosure of that's going to be really important from a governance perspective. Matt or or Rob, anything in your areas that you see from a a government's perspective?
3: Sure. So, it's funny
0: that you talk about CEO
3: compensation because... Typically in the small and mid cap world, frankly, I don't have a I don't have a problem with CEOs getting paid a lot of money, just as long as it's being tied to firm performance. Right. We really care that the that they're being compensated responsibly, that they take the amount of capital invested and responsible growth into consideration as they compensate these CEOs. And one of the things that they do is they often use stock-based compensation to tie those CEOs to the performance of the stock. Which is what it should be. Exactly. And so sometimes in small cap and mid cap IT companies, we see stock-based comp used aggressively in lieu of cash compensation, which sometimes gets added back by investment analysts. But here at ClearBridge, one thing we do take into consideration is that the long-term impact that that has on shareholder value, because really what these companies are doing is they're growing the number of shares over time, even if you're not experiencing a cash outflow in that year. So one of the conversations that we're having with boards of directors, with lead independent directors, with the heads of the compensation committees, is to make sure that they're using this stock-based compensation in a responsible way. It's a very good tool to motivate individuals at companies, and we want companies to use it, but we want to make sure that they're using it in a way that doesn't take advantage of the shareholder over time.
0: Great. I think that's all the time that we have for today. Got a nice preview here of what's included in the impact report. Matt, Rob, and Tatiana, thank you so much for for joining me here today. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you. We hope that the podcast has given everyone listening a better understanding of how ESG informs our investment process here at ClearBridge, and also the importance of regular engagement with our portfolio companies. Again, we encourage you to download our 2018 Impact Report to learn more about our approach to sustainability. You can access the report on our website at www.clearbridge.com. We hope you'll continue to join us throughout 2019 and welcome any questions, comments, and suggestions, which you can email to us again at podcast at clearbridge.com thanks for dialing in please note the following past performance is no guarantee of future results the opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of march fifteenth, two 2019 it may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole, and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics reference have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information.